Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is David Thompson, whose latest book is A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors. David Thompson is the author of several books about film, including most notably a Biographical Dictionary of Film, and the revised The New Biographical Dictionary of Film. Also, Showman, The Life of David O. Selznick, Rosebud, The Story of Orson Welles, The Big Screen, The Story of the Movies. There are also some novels in there. This book, A Light in the Dark, while subtitled A History of Movie Directors, is really a full-length essay about directors, and also about reappraisal of films. Just before we started talking, I mentioned that about a year ago, for the first time in, it's a bit over a year ago now, the first time in several years, I rewatched La Dolce Vita, the Fellini film. First time I saw it was in college, and I hated it. I thought it was long and pointless. This time, I thought it was spectacular, and I thought it was one of the greatest movies I'd ever seen. And your response was, oh, maybe I should check it out again. This book seems to be a lot about that. In fact, the opening chapter, which is about D.W. Griffith, is about reappraising his work in light of the way we look at a film these days, like Birth of a Nation. When you were beginning the book, was this thought about reappraisal on your mind? Absolutely. And I would say that that thought, everything attached to it, is really nowadays one of the most compelling things that draws me to look at movies, uh, particularly looking at old movies that I saw a long time ago and maybe have seen over the years. I'm fascinated by the way an impossible thing occurs. That if you watch a movie at 20 and 40, and maybe then all the way to 80, you're watching not different movies, they're not completely separate, but the movie has changed. Now, of course, the movie hasn't changed because the movie is its set number of frames of film. It's exactly the way it was, so long as it's been well-preserved and looked after. You have changed, we the viewers have changed. And as you say with La Dolce Vita, something that once upon a time seemed maybe boring and pretentious to you, as it did to me when I first saw it, later in life, it becomes something else. And what I find so intriguing is the way in which that shift has occurred because of shifts in you or in me or in anyone. Maybe we've grown up Maybe we've grown down, I don't know, but we've changed. We've had experiences. And sometimes in the past, when you're young, you're looking at a movie that is dealing with experiences you have never really had. So you take a certain attitude to it. And then later, 
you've had some experiences like that. So it takes on a, a comedy or a tragedy that it didn't originally have. And I, I just love that feeling. And in a way, a critic is supposed not to own up to it because you were supposed to say, well, what I said 30 years ago is dogma, it stands. And of course, I wouldn't change my mind because I'm a respectable critic. I find I'm changing my mind all the time. Not drastically, maybe. I mean, not to the extent that a film I totally hated has become a masterpiece. But the variations that are possible within that are happening all the time. A film that I once thought was just so tense and so taut and so perfect can put me to sleep now. Now, you know, when you get to 80, you fall asleep in odd ways, not always the recommended ways. And I don't think I could be a critic in a movie theater going to press screenings anymore because I think I would let myself down by falling asleep in some of the films. So it's a problem that comes upon elderly critics. I think also as society changes, our perspective changes. I remember the first time I saw Gone with the Wind, I thought it was the most amazing film and the most amazing feminist film I'd ever seen. There you are, yeah. And yet now I have no interest in rewatching it. I've watched it a couple of times since, but most recently looking at it from the perspective of perpetuating a lie about yeah. the Civil War, yeah. I can't look at it that way anymore. Well, there you are. I mean, really not that long ago, and I'm going to confess, I was asked by the Selznick family to write the biography of David Selznick, the man who produced that film, and really was the creator on the film. And, you know, I became a surrogate member of the Selznick family. I knew a great deal of inside stuff because of my access to them. And I believed in the film. And, you know, when you believe in a film, it's like when you believe in a person. You sometimes don't look at them critically or in that critical way that you would look at other people. And I thought Gone with the Wind... I never thought it was a great film in the way that, say, Citizen Kane could be a great film, but I thought it was a hugely important film because of what it did to the nature of film going at a crucial moment in Hollywood's history, just as the war was breaking out. And as you say now, you feel sort of ashamed looking at the film. Now, you know, I'm older, but I am the same person. And I should have felt ashamed when I looked at the film then. Exactly the same things could be said about the way historically our culture has responded to Birth of a Nation. I mean, people went crazy over Birth of a Nation in 1915. People formed film studios and they built movie theaters on the strength of that picture's success. It's the most important American film ever made in that it really inspired and funded the industry in a huge way. And it's a disgrace that people allowed that to happen without saying, look, what this film is about is shocking. Now, if we know that about ourselves, then I think it's so interesting to ask, what are the films that we sort of worship today that in 30 years' time we may be ashamed of? Or to reverse that, what are the films that we hardly take seriously now, but which in 30 years' time may look to be 
the masterpieces of an age when they were so overlooked. So, you know, this this transience and the changes that are part of it uh, obsesses me more and more, more than the stories of the films, more than the actors, more than the directors even. I love the way in which the mirror that we call the screen reflects us in different ways over the decades. I want to continue with that thought, but a little aside here. Do you think it would have made a difference, the view of Birth of a Nation, if the title had been retained from the book The Klansman? Great point. I mean, I don't know, obviously, but the speculation that you're prompting is very worthwhile. I don't know what the term the Klansman meant in 1915. You have to realize, as I'm sure you do, that the showing of the film had a very big impact on the sort of the re-enlivenment of the Klan. Many more people joined the Klan. There were unquestionably and tragically lynchings that were inspired by this. It was a very, very ugly response. But I'm sure in 1915 even, for a lot of people, the Klansman was a warning bell and it might have put people off. I don't know. To give you another example of that, I have always thought that The Godfather is a curiously reassuring title. It's part of the way in which, as we watch that film, we get drawn into the family. We want to be a part of that group. And the title is a threshold to that, and it sort of welcomes us in, embraces us. Now, this is part of my feeling that The Godfather is a film that in 25 years' time may be regarded, and I think is beginning to be regarded even even now, as a, a subtle celebration of organized crime, although it claims to be against it, and of a totally male-dominated world, because one of the other things about The Godfather is that there isn't a godmother, and women get treated shabbily in the story, and they're shut out of the room time and again. And I think The Godfather, which has been for several decades a sort of unquestioned classic of American film, and God knows it's so well made, it deserves that status, but I think it's going to be reappraised. This brings me back to the original discussion about Griffith, because as I was reading A Light in the Dark, I was very aware the entire time that the first draft of this was written while Donald Trump was still president. The whole book was written while he was president. The reassessments have to take that into account. I'm thinking specifically of two people. One is Fritz Lang and the other is Lenny Riefenstahl. And let's talk about Lang because you discuss the relationship of Lang and his wife, Thea von Harbo, and of course, Metropolis, and she was a Nazi. She became a Nazi, yeah. Well, it is still said in the books, and it's still said by many Lang admirers, that this was a, a great director, great in Berlin in the 20s and early 30s, but then great again when he came to America. I don't quite buy it. I think that the German films, in both ambition and execution, are superior. I don't think he was a happy 
comfortable director in America. And I talk about the way he went from one studio to another, never found a home. And I don't think the American films are nearly as interesting as as the German films. And what I was going to say was that then you have to appreciate that all those German films were scripted by his wife, Thea von Harbu, who did not leave Germany when Lang did and did become a Nazi and has become ever since a sort of pariah in film history. And what I'm suggesting is that whatever her politics, I think that she was an invaluable, maybe essential screenwriter to Fritz Lang because he never found an equivalent screenwriter in America that he could rely on and work with all the time and make one film after another. And, you know, it's part of the whole idea that runs through the book that collaboration is enormously important, even though a lot of directors like to say and emotionally need to say, I did it. It was me. The auteur theory, in other words, that films are made by the directors and all the people who work on a film are their obedient servants. Well, if you know any film history, you know that that was not often the case uh, and that most films that we admire owe a lot to people beyond the director. Uh, You can say Notorious is a great Hitchcock film, which I think it is, but it's absurd to say that the film is not also dependent on Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, Claude Rains even. Actors have an enormous amount to do with what we feel about films. In talking about von Harbo and her relationship to Lang and his films, there's a subtext of fascism running through those German films because of her, I would guess. And I just wonder how much of that comes out as we reappraise his films today. I think that it had to do with her, but I think it had to do with him too. You know, I think you have to remember that the Nazis, uh, when they came to power, they wanted Lang to be their filmmaker. That had a lot to do with what they had seen and felt in his films. Lang was fascinated by power and authority. He's not a great director of human freedom. And I think that is partly what the Nazis felt and registered in his films. You know, what I'm saying is I think that he and von Harbu were very alike. And I think that's one reason why they worked well together. And when Lang decided that he should leave Germany because, you know, things were going to get so ugly and so dangerous and she decided to stay, you can interpret that as saying, oh, she was a fascist and he wasn't. But I think that's a little too tidy and simple. I think Lang was a careerist, and I think he he recognized that the moment had come to go to America as his great contemporaries, Murnau and Lubitsch, had done. It was, you know, a very strong trend in the German film business to go to Hollywood, and I think that he felt that was the great time. She stayed in Germany, and you can argue it's because she believed deeply in fascism and wanted to be a part of that. I'm not trying to defend her, but equally, I don't think it's sensible or reasonable to simply say that Lang was the good one in the partnership and she was the bad one. 
David Thompson, in the book, you focus on certain directors. I would guess on some level that has to do with your own appreciation of them. Is there any director, again, getting back to reappraisal, which 20 years ago you were put in the book and this time did not and vice versa? Oh, that's a great question. 20 years ago, I'm sure there are. I mean, I think 20 years ago, this is a very hard one to answer. I think that 20 years ago, I probably would have thought to make a chapter on Steven Spielberg because he had peaked already 20 years ago, but he was such a dominant figure in the American film scene and a very interesting director, some of the time anyway. I think I would have written about him. I think today, for me, he's sort of gone off the front boiler, if you know what I mean. He's sort of gone back on the stove a bit. So I would not, I did not take him on as a whole chapter, although there is a part of the book that does talk about him. And the reverse, putting aside more current directors that are in your book, particularly uh, black directors and women directors. Is there any older director that you suddenly decided his or her work is more important today than I would have thought 20 years ago? There is a, a figure in the book that has surprised some people that he's in the book. That's Stephen Frears, the English director. And I wanted to have a chapter about a director who was chiefly valuable, I felt, for their professionalism and consistency. Stephen Frears does not say, this is a Stephen Frears film. He doesn't say, this is about me expressing myself, in the way that a lot of very good directors do. But he's happy to keep working. He's happy to keep looking for good scripts. He doesn't write the scripts himself. He collaborates on them sometimes but he doesn't take a credit. He believes that if he gets a good script and he can cast it right, then there's a chance it will be a good film. And over the years, over the decades, working on television and on the big screen, Frears has made a lot of films. I mean, probably in his time, only Woody Allen will have made more films. And Frears' pictures are not consistent in the sense that they're all at the same level of quality. Some are not very good, and he would admit that. But at least half a dozen are remarkable, and another half dozen are well worth watching again. And I like that quality of professionalism about him because I think I've come to appreciate professionalism in a director more and more on top of self-expression. I think sheer outright self-expression in a director can date quite fast. So several people I know have been surprised that Frears is in the book, but then when they've read the chapter, they'll say, well, of course, he deserves to be in the book. He's he's an important figure without ever being a self-important figure. But he's different in another way than, say, the uh, studio directors like Michael Curtis, who churned out film after film because of assignment after assignment, because even though his variety is there, he's still, in a way, the auteur. He's the guy who is doing the pitch, right? Well, he's certainly the guy who, in the most 
most cases, does the film and chooses to do the film. Whereas you could say that Catiz did not have that many options. Warner Brothers told him over a period of 30 years, this is what you start on, on Monday. And he did. And sometimes it turned out forgettable. Sometimes it turned out Casablanca. And Frears does exercise more choice. And in part, that's because there's a little more room for that kind of choice in the era in which Frears has lived, and particularly in England. And in England, I would say more than in this country, the writer has a real power on films. I talk about this in the book, the way in which Frears has cultivated and worked with certain writers over and over again. He likes them, and it's a nice working relationship, but he believes in what they do and what they bring to a film, while saying, they're doing something I couldn't do. And he said that to me outright. You know, he's a very modest, self-effacing figure. And there is a little more of the tradition of modest directors in Britain than there is over here, I think. You discuss Alfred Hitchcock in some depth, and you discuss the way he stayed away as a private man in his work, yet at the same time, we also know he abused Tippi Hedren. How should we look at that in light of his work? Well, I think that Hitchcock was a man who, from the moment he began making films, introduced the personality of a voyeur. And chiefly, you feel that in the way he looks at women. He photographs women with a mixture of lust and adoration that is remarkable. And, and, you know, by the time you get to a film like Vertigo, you can't talk about Vertigo, really, without trying to describe and inhabit the way in which his camera feels for Kim Novak. It's an intensely erotic, suspenseful film. And you could argue that it's the, the climax of his kind of voyeuristic impulse, although Psycho goes beyond the climax, a post-climactic film. I think that was there from the beginning. And if you try to relate that to his biography, Hitchcock famously was not what you would call an attractive man. And he is maybe the one of the most overweight directors. And he seems absolutely resigned to that. I believe that he probably only ever had sexual relationships with his wife. I think he was faithful to her in a technical sense, while lusting after just about every actress he ever worked with. And he lived at a time when many directors exploited their actresses in ways of which we are now deeply ashamed, but which are integral, I think, to the voyeuristic quality of some of the films. And then a time came when he was so successful after Psycho and when censorship was breaking down that I think he found it irresistible that he might not try to impose himself upon an actress. And according to Tippi Hedren, that is what he did with her. Now, we know what Tippi Hedren says occurred. Hitchcock never spoke about this. I'm not saying he didn't come on to her 
that he did not make ugly passes at her and did not victimize her somewhat when she refused. But we still, we only have the one side of it. And I think it caused a kind of breakdown in Hitchcock. I don't think he ever made a really good film after the Tippi Hedren period, after The Birds and Marnie, neither of which is perfect, but they're both very interesting. You know, I think that the temptation of the auteur position for him became overpowering, and it really sort of, in a curious way, broke him down at just the moment that he was becoming world famous, very rich, and in a way, maybe the most famous film director in the world. A side note about Hitchcock. After reading different chapters of your book, David Thompson, I would go and look up IMDb and see what I could find out. I discovered that Hitchcock himself directed 18 episodes of his television show. Have you seen any of them, and are they remarkable in what we would call a Hitchcockian way? Oh, I've seen over the years quite a few of the episodes. And I would say that if you're interested in Hitchcock, then you have to watch the TV show because it was not just a sidebar for him. It was not just a way of cashing in on his reputation. He exercised quite a bit of choice and control over the story material. One of his favored employees, one of the most trusted employees, Joan Harrison, was in charge of the material. And I think that he ran his eye over quite a lot of what was there. I think he had a hand in the casting. There's some very interesting casting in that series. And as you say, sometimes he wanted to direct an episode himself. So I think the TV show is a very important part of his career. And most of the good books on Hitchcock, like Pat McGilligan's book, they treat it very seriously. We're living in an age now of television series, but these are not television series that we would have thought of 30 years ago, 35 years ago. The first generation were, I guess, the HBO series like Oz or Sopranos, but now they're all sort of series and sort of like novels, if you know what I mean. I do know which. I mean, like 19th century novels, because they go on and on. There's a lot of them. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that that makes me wonder. I mean, I interviewed uh, the the former actor, Andrew McCarthy, a couple of years ago. I wrote a book. He basically makes his living directing television shows. Yeah. Is there a real difference, you think, between an Andrew McCarthy, and you name a few of them in your in your book, and someone like Curtis, or are they more or less just different generations of the same kind of director? I mean, you're touching on a thing that really is one of the reasons I did the book, which was that you know, in the last 15 years, whatever, I found that I had been spending a lot of time watching and re-watching Uh, some of the long-form TV series. And I came to the conclusion that often some of these series were as good as or better than what was being offered in movie theaters. Obviously, they were a different form. They went on so much longer. But I never felt the least complaint 
about Breaking Bad going on several years. It was so good. I wanted to know what was going to happen. I never felt any sort of easing of the tension, the narrative tension in Babylon Berlin, because again, it was so good. It was so well done. And yet I realized, and I probably take more note of the credits than a lot of people would do, I didn't know who had directed these episodes because, as you indicate, the episodes are serving a larger cause, the series. And several different people would have directed episodes from, say, Breaking Bad. And really, the essence of what Breaking Bad did and what it was about was that you couldn't tell the personality of one episode from another. And I realized that that was really quite like the way certain contract directors had worked in the golden age. And again, it it was a kind of professionalism that I find very attractive and I think has produced some remarkable work. What we have instead of the director figure in these TV series is the figure we call a showrunner, a term that's used quite a lot these days, but not too many people know what it really involves. A showrunner in the old-fashioned sense, is a producer or a studio boss who rides over the whole thing. It's a little bit like what Hitchcock was doing with his TV show, which was that he was supervising everything, and he probably had to give his approval to things. And he made sure that there was somebody like Joan Harrison hired in a position to make sure that the stories had a sort of consistent quality and a consistent interest in people. There's a very dark, perverse attitude to life in those TV shows, which I think played a big part in Hitchcock's development through the 1950s. So the director of those TV shows is relatively insignificant, if you know what I mean, in that the general public don't know who directed it. But those shows can't survive without that kind of professionalism. One thing that McCarthy told me is he said, if you are going to direct different episodes of different shows, you have to watch them to get a sense of what exactly they're doing and how they're doing it. And if you do that, then you become you know, a technician and you can adjust yourself to whatever vibe or whatever you want to call it that particular tv show has whereas the showrunner who might be the main writer or might be a director is the one who controls the overall vision yeah there's no question about that and people like david chase and vince gilligan showrunners are the auteur figures without doing all the work but they they have laid down a formula for the work that is so good, so true, and they are so careful and effective in whom they choose to carry out the task from one episode to another, that it works as a fairly seamless whole. So you take a show like Breaking Bad, which actually was made season by season when they weren't sure they were going to be renewed. Don't forget that element to it. But you look at it as a whole in hindsight, And it seems like something that was designed from the outset, like a 19th century novel. And of course, many of those novels, if you remember, 
were serialized. Uh, Dickens, say, to some degree, was making them up as he went along. That's the old story papers, sure. There you are, yeah. One other thing about that and this new way of looking brings up two questions. The first is, as we live through so far a little over a year of the pandemic, we have become used to watching movies. Now, we're not watching them on televisions necessarily. We're watching them on big home entertainment screens, which could be the same size as you know, a movie screen in 1940 in Orson Welles' living room. But we are seeing them at home. Has our culture changed so that film as we know it is going to enter a new universe when theaters come back? Simple answer is yes. And how? Second answer would be, you say, when theaters come back. I think there's a real if to that question. I think that something has happened to our experience with watching on screens that is going to alter a lot of things in the future. I think that there will undoubtedly be a rush back to movie theaters when we feel free and safe to go back. But the theaters that have opened lately, even in San Francisco and the Bay Area, in my experience, are not attracting very big audiences yet because people do not feel sure and safe. But also, I think, because the habit or the realization that we can watch our stuff, whatever it is, at home with more ease and time control over it has really sunk in. And, you know, here's a thing that doesn't get talked about very much. If you watch a movie that is streaming on your screen at home, whatever you call it, it's not really a television screen anymore, but that's what it came from. The picture quality at home is a good deal better than the picture quality if you go to see the same film in a movie theater. Now, in a theater, it's bigger, but it's not brighter, it's not sharper. It's not more detailed. And I think people are discovering that and responding to it. And I have a hunch that in the next five years, say, a lot of movie theaters are going to close finally. Many of them were semi-closed before the pandemic. You could go to movie theaters and there were very few people there watching the movie years before the pandemic. The habit, which we tend to sentimentalize just a little bit, that habit was in decline some time ago, I think. For me, I see a distinction between going to a theater and seeing a film that I could watch at home and going to a theater and seeing live theater, which the distinction between what you're seeing in your home or in a movie theater becomes even more sharp. I think that you're dead right. And I think that when the rush back comes, I think the theaters that are going to benefit most are live theater. I think the liveness of it, the human interaction, the feeling that there are people in the same room trying to please us, trying to amuse us, trying to move us, I think that's going to mean a lot. I think the, the deadness 
in the movie screen in theaters is going to mean less than it ever meant before. Another element which was more, I think it was maybe more focused before the pandemic, is that if you watched a movie at home, you got distracted, you walked away, all of that stuff. It seems to me in the past year, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just me, there's more of a focus on seeing a film as a film or maybe in segments, but not interrupting yourself as much because that's what a film is. I don't know. If I understand you correctly, I think the thing we call binge watching is crucial because I think that what has happened, it, w- it was happening before COVID, but it's happened more intensely during COVID, is that people find a show they like and they start watching it. My wife and I have been through this pattern time and again. We watch an episode and we say, well, of course, we've got to watch another episode. And we've watched two episodes and we're getting to the point where we would normally, like elderly people, retire to bed. And we say, come on, let's watch another episode. And we watch three and sometimes we'll watch four episodes. And it's the early hours of the morning, times that we have not really seen very much in the past. And I think the binge watching idea has really caught hold. And it's a new kind of passionate involvement where, you know, you might say to someone the following day, well, what did you do last night? Oh, well, we watched a movie. And they say, well, what was the movie? Well, we watched about four hours of Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or whatever. You know, a four-hour movie once upon a time would have been a pretty big event. And now you say, well, we're going back tonight and we're going to watch four more hours of it. The other thing that's changed, and you do bring it up again in um, A Light in the Dark, David Thompson, is how directors have more of an option of recreating their original non-theatrical cut. We've seen it, obviously, with Coppola years ago with Godfather Saga, which was a TV version of one and two. But with Coppola, we're also seeing Cotton Club, which the new version is way superior to the old one. Absolutely. And Godfather 3, which I haven't seen yet. Have you seen that? No, I haven't either. My first impression of Godfather 3 was so bad that I I will be a hard sell to get back to that, I think. We've also got extended versions of The Hateful Eight of four hours. And maybe at two and a half or three hours, it was too long. But watching at home at four hours, it may not be. Well, there you are, you see. It's very strange. These things change again. It's what we were talking about earlier, that the format can change subtly, and it's a different experience. Then you have things like, and I don't want to talk about the quality, Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is kind of an extraordinary thing because not only did the first version fail— and God knows it was terrible, and the new version is not a good movie either. But what he was able to do is get the money from Warner Brothers, go back and create his original vision of this movie. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I can't recall that ever happening. Well, you know, it's a funny thing, but we've had an era, we still have it, but we had an era of amazing monsters on screen in films. We had what we called monster movies. Now we have sort of monster franchises 
where they take on a bestial life of their own and they're unstoppable and they'll never go away. They're sort of like the alien in, in the alien films. You can kill it once, you can kill it twice, but you know it's coming back. And people have always loved being afraid of that. And I think that's at work in the medium as a whole. Is it necessarily a bad thing for a director to keep revising his own work? Thinking specifically of, say, Apocalypse Now, which Coppola kept revising over and over again, or even Sondheim's shows that he keeps revising? I think it depends on the personality of the artist, the creator, writer, director, whatever we call them. I think a lot of people are so obsessed with the creative work that they can reach a point on a project where they say, I'm done. That's as good as it's ever going to be. Take it away from me. And they mean take it away from me because they know that over the weekend where they try to rest and recover from the ordeal of doing it, they're going to come back Monday and they're going to look at it again and they might say, oh, I think I could do that scene a little differently. I mean, the Sondheim approach, which, you know, is the sort of ultimate in perfectionism, curiously knows it will never get perfect. Therefore, it feels compelled to keep improving. There's never been a film released, I would venture to say, that satisfied this director when it was released. And if you had said to him or her, would you like another week on it? They'd say, oh, God, yes, would I like another week and another $100,000 maybe. But it's a very curious thing that you can keep improving nearly anything if you've got that kind of relentlessly dissatisfied frame of mind. And I think Sondheim certainly has it. I think Coppola has got it now. And in a way, I think what Coppola has done on several projects where he's remade them some of that remaking is almost more interesting than the original process. One of the things that's happened in the past year, and it keeps happening even as we speak, is America's dealings with race. Yeah. And obviously every day as this is being recorded, another we see another example of a young black man killed by a cop. Yep. Overall, how does this change our movie culture? It's one of a number of revolutionary changes that we face. One is how do we deal with matters of race? Another is how do we deal with the place of women? Maybe the one that unites the other two is how can we reassess and redefine the prowess and supremacy of men. Hollywood marketed so many cultural lies to us for so long and did it with such charm and such suspense and such entertainment value that we overlooked the lies and the possible damage they were doing. I think the culture is at a point where it's no longer prepared to overlook the lies. Race is an obvious one, but matters of sexuality and male power are others. And I do think they're all bound up together. They're all part of 
the same big lie, which is that men will make America great when nobody even bothers to define what greatness is. I think these changes are going on and they are going to have extraordinary effects on things like movie going, but on much, much broader things than that. I think it's going to affect advertising, so it's going to affect education. And I don't know whether we have the time left to accomplish those changes before we do not have the time. So it's a very, very frightening test. And the attitudes that made the films that I grew up on and still love, and I'm sure same is true for you, those attitudes are untenable now. And a whole lot of the entertainment that we loved is not viable because of that. That sort of brings us to your final chapters in the book, which is on black directors, of which now there are many Asian directors. When we look at all this and look out the other side, what we're seeing is almost an an explosion of different points of view that were only available by looking at international movies. Yes. Yeah. And then international movies like Parasite win Best Oscar. Yeah, I know. Amazing. Amazing stuff. A source of hope. If we as a country can begin to appreciate that there are sensitive, thoughtful minds in countries other than our own, then it might be possible to entertain the idea that there are thoughtful, sensitive minds, even in our own country. (laughs) There's a thought. David Thompson, this book has been finished and was finished last year. Are you working on another one? I'm trying to do a book that takes the same sort of approach as this one to actors, which is a way of sort of saying how acting has altered in the hundred plus years of the movies. Do you ever see yourself doing one about the writers? Yes, I do, but I'm not sure I can live long enough. Well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with David Thompson, whose latest book is A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors. If you want a definitive book about the movies, you can't go wrong with his A New Biographical Dictionary of Film. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>